Please do keep that open because uh, here we are in the last week of our series on Nehemiah, one of the shortest blokes in the Bible. I'm allowed a dad joke on Father's Day, Nehemiah, and uh, an awesome uh, story of how God is faithful to his promises. God keeps his promises. That's a big thing we've seen all the way through Nehemiah. And uh, just keep it open there on page 475 because we're going to follow on the story. Last week, we stood with the people of God on one of the greatest days that they'd ever had. They were at the Watergate. We went back in the 60s. No, we were back outside Jerusalem with God's people standing and hearing the book of the law, as it was called, the Bible, as they had in those days. Genesis, right through to Deuteronomy. They stood for half a day, six hours. They listened to the word of God read to them. And they heard it as they've never heard it before. And they wept. They wept tears that came to their eyes, tears of grief as they realised that for centuries and centuries they had failed before their God, their great God. And we saw last week they were pushed to understand more deeply beyond the sadness, the grace and the mercy and the love of God and their tears turned to joy, the great joy, as they came to know the goodness, the kindness, the mercy, the very grace of God. True knowledge of God, knowing God is not just about morality, it's not about doing some things or about religious being religious, it's the aha moment of seeing God for who he is and learning that the joy of the Lord is your strength. So this week, as uh, we come to chapter 9, and if you've you've missed any of the uh, the sermons so far, you can go online on our website or on our podcast, go to iTunes and type in St Martin's Calara and you'll be able to keep up um, because we've been going right through this book and it's a great story of how God works. And here we are in uh, a few days later. Here we are, chapter 9, on the 24th day of the same month. And they're hearing the book of the law of God again. The Israelites gathered together, fasting and wearing sackcloth and having dust on their heads. They've come to hear what God has to say to them, just as you and I have come together this morning to hear God speak. And what we're going to see this morning more clearly has to do with the fact that true knowledge of God has to do with history. True knowledge of God has to do with history. See, the knowledge of God is not an idea that we get in our heads. I like to think of God as, or I feel God when I go out, you know, for a drive in the national park. No, it's not an idea we get in our heads. It's not something that comes from a sort of a private, personal, subjective experience. You know, sometimes you have conversations with people about God and you get both of those things coming out saying, yeah, well, I believe in a God who... And by that they mean, well, this is how I like to think of God. Or somebody will say, well, I feel that God is like, and they'll tell you something they feel God is like. But true knowledge of God actually has to do with history. True knowledge of God comes from the fact that God has done things at certain times, in certain places, in the history of the world to make himself known so you and I can know the true and living God. And that, of course, is why we Christians speak about the gospel. Because that word, the gospel, means news. It means good news. And it's news of things that have happened. Now, you turn on the news today, you don't really expect good things to happen, do you? You turn on the news and you see what's happening in China and America. And you you turn on the news and you see what's happening in the parliament. And you turn on the news to see the Parramatta Eels have lost. But, you know, whatever chapter you come into, I mean, you see a lot of rubbish on there. But you don't expect someone to see they're telling you their own ideas for a half an hour in the news section. You don't expect them to stand up there saying, well, here's my personal subjective feelings on kind of how I feel today. No, they stand up, or the person there on the news reports on what things happened today. That's how news works. You expect to hear things that are happening, things that have happened, and that's what the knowledge of God is like. It arises from the things that have happened. 
And that's why we open the Bibles together. That's why I encourage you to have your Bibles open, to hear what God says so he can speak to us. It keeps taking us back to the things that God has done in history. And if you're an impatient sort of person who really wants the cash value now, what's this say to me now? What, you know, what, Matt, why don't you talk about the now? And sometimes you hear people say that, don't you? I want to hear something about God and me today. And that's fair enough. I understand the impatience. But you can't go know about God and me today without going back into history, without seeing how the God of the universe has made himself known to us. See, we know what God is like today because of what God has done and the way he's acted in history and what he's like. That's why God's people praise him. Have a little slide here. God brings renewal as we praise him. And this is the way this book of Nehemiah finishes up as God has rebuilt not only the city, but the people of God here in this place. Of course, in the book of Nehemiah, it ultimately falls short because they have, Jesus hasn't showed up yet. But at this stage, in this place, we see that the renewal of God's people and they praise him. Praise is telling God what he's done. Real praise always has some kind of past tense in it. Praise is, if you like, you've been somewhere, you've witnessed some heroic act. And you come back and you praise the one who's done those incredible things by telling everyone about it. You can't be quiet because you've seen something happen and it just comes out of you. And the praise of God is like that. You praise God by telling what God has done. Now, sometimes we get a bit mixed up because we narrow the idea of praise right down. And we water it down and we think that praising's just about singing songs. Now, of course, and one of the things our bands led us in well today is the praise of God to music, and that's a fine thing to do. But we've also praised God when Mamie came to read the Bible to us because she read for us the things that God has done in history so we can praise God. Praise is telling what God has done. God was being praised in our presence. Did you realise that as Mamie read? And sometimes we'll stand up as Christian people And we'll declare what God has done. We'll say a creed. And one of the great things about praising God, that we'll see this happening with the people of God here in chapter 9 of Nehemiah, is that it will set your life in perspective. Because when you understand what God has done, when you understand what God is like, and you see what's going on in your own life, and you see that God's done this, this and this, you know you can face anything. When you understand your history in the light of what God has done in history, you see that he is at work now and what he is going to do in the future. And this morning here in Nehemiah 9, we come to this great chapter and we see the people of God praising God. You see there in the kind of verse, got at the end of verse 5, before it says blessed, it says, Stand up and praise the Lord your God, who is from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name and may it be exalted above all blessing. That's what they're doing. That's what these Levites are leading God's people in, the praise of God. And in verse 9, you have some of the names that we spared mainly from reading out, the Perizzites, the, the Jebusites, and the Girgashites, and all of those ites. But from verse 5 in Nehemiah 9, it's the Levites who are calling on the people to stand up and praise the Lord your God, the God who's from everlasting to everlasting. So let's hear what praising the God from everlasting to everlasting is like. What do they do to praise God? And I presume one person stood up and read all of this out. Here God is being praised. I want to see, we're going to look at this from two angles, you see. They say what God has done. They go back and they say, look, let's see what God has done. 
And then we're going to see what he's like because of what he's done. And what I've done is I've divided into six sections through this whole chapter, just so we can skate through it relatively quickly. And I just want to look at each one of them with you. Do you want to praise God? Well, we can't start at a better place than verse 6. Verse 6 starts with creation. Verse 6 starts where all praise starts. You alone are the Lord. You made the heavens, even the highest heavens, and all the starry host, the the earth and all that is in it, the seas and all that's in them. You give life to everything, and the multitudes of heaven worship you. This is basic. This is the history of what God has done to bring the world into being. The fundamental thing is that he made everything, that he is the creator. And that's why no one really has the right to say, I'm not interested in God. They don't really have the right to say that. might have the freedom to say that. But you don't really have the right to say you're not interested in God because God is your maker. And if he's the maker of all things, he is relevant to all things. He is the creator. And that's the first thing. He did it in history. That's how history began. Within, with the beginning, God created all things. And so we move to the second, Abraham, in from verse 7. You are the Lord God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and named him Abraham. You found his heart faithful to you and you made a covenant or a promise with him to give his descendants the land of the Canaanites and all those other people. You see, the God who made everything chose one man, Abraham. He named him Abraham and he made a promise to him and to all his descendants that this is how blessing would come. Third episode is there in verses 9 to 11, the Exodus. In due course, the descendants of Abraham found themselves in slavery in Egypt. And the God who created the heavens and earth and chose them as his people made a promise to Abraham that he would bring those people out of Egypt and through Moses by events that were so extraordinary that they've never been forgotten. How can you forget those events of the Exodus in history? God's people could never forget. And that's episode three. And then episode four is from verse 12 down to 21. And that's the period that followed when they wandered in the wilderness. They wandered in the desert. And during that time, in verse 13, we read that God gave them the law. Remember Mount Sinai. But during this time, their true character emerged. Look at verse 16. But they, our forefathers became arrogant and stiff-necked and in their rebellion appointed a leader in order to return them to to their slavery. But we read, God did not abandon them. And so you come to the fifth and final episode in the recounting of what God has done in history. What's the fifth and final episode? From verses 22 down to 31, they come to the promised land. They come to Jerusalem, which is, you know, they've just rebuilt. And so the Here they are remembering and praising God that he brought his people to this land, to Jerusalem. But they were disobedient, verse 26, and they rebelled against you. They put your law behind their backs. They killed your prophets. They demolished them in order to turn them back to you. They committed awful blasphemy. So in verse 29, you warned them to return to your law. But they became arrogant and disobeyed your commands. And they sinned against your ordinances by which man will live if he obeys them. Stubbornly they turned their backs on you. They became stiff-necked and refused to listen. For many years you were patient with them by your spirit. You admonished them through your prophets, and yet they paid no attention, and you handed them over to their neighbouring peoples. But in your great mercy you did not put an end to them, nor did you abandon them. Now I wonder if through all of that you can see how it seems to me that that's what praising God is like. 
you see these people back then praising God. Do you remember how good it is to praise God like that? Do you know how good it is to praise God for what he's done? To see how this clarifies your life and where you fit in when you remember what God has done in history, in the past. This, he's done this, he's done this, he's done this. This is what God is like. It helps you to see where you stand in history. Now, of course, we don't stand where they stood. We stand sometime further on. We need the sixth episode, and you'll see I've put it up there. It would have been good to have one of those things where it sort of flies in, but anyway. So I didn't do that on the PowerPoint. Six is Jesus, the very Son of God to save us. God in history has rescued his people once and for all time. Not this time from Egypt, but from hell, by dying for us in our place. Dying on the cross in our place. He rescues us. And what I'm trying to underline here is that that is history. It's something that happens. And that's why, of course, the enemies of the gospel find great delight in attacking this history. You know, every time just before Easter or Christmas, they'll come up some show on TV where they've debunked something, they've found the bones of Jesus, or they've, you know, of course it's all rubbish. But again and again, if people want to attack Christianity, if they're unfriendly towards the Christian faith, what they try and do is suggest that these things never really happened. They're not generally intellectually bankrupt. They're motivated by a desire to undo the Christian faith, not to truly find out the, the truth, not a desire for truth and for God. There's all sorts of inconsistencies within them. They're more like conspiracy theories. But nevertheless, when people want to attack the Christian faith, this is what they do. They attack it in history, as if it never happened, so it's not true, so there's nothing in it. But it did happen. We have God's Word, we have the Bible, we have all of the historical evidence and the archaeology and the support, which shows us that this is what happened in history. And so again and again, we're able to show who God is. See, the most important thing is that this is what God has done. He is the one who's made all these things, who's done all of these things at these points in history and revealed himself to us. And so you'll notice in each of those episodes... I just want to just quickly just whiz back through them just to show you how in each episode there's a statement of what we know God is like because of what he did at that point. So firstly, the praise of God when it's done properly, when it's done biblically, actually has two tenses. You're going to have a past and a present tense if we speak in terms of grammar. You've got these past tense, which is praising God for what he has done. But you've got the present tense because you know what God is like now. So I want to encourage you as you go back home, as you go this afternoon, as you sit, perhaps sit out in the sun and you read through these chapters, I want to encourage you to read through these final chapters of Nehemiah. You'll see why I saved Mamie from reading chapter 10. Um, you read through these final chapters of Nehemiah and soak it in and see the past tense and the present tense verbs. See what God has done in history and what he is like now. That's how the praise of God works. So episode 1, verse 6, how does it begin? He says, you are the Lord. Because he alone is the creator. So knowledge of God is necessarily precisely to do with that kind of history. If a knowledge of God was just about my ideas or just about my experiences, it wouldn't work like that. You know, you'd have your ideas, I'd have my ideas, you'd have your experiences, I'd have my experiences. We'd get together, we'd work out, well, God must be something like this. But we wouldn't really know for sure and we'd just sort of come up with something that we thought sounded about right because it suited us. But that's not what God is like. It's got to do with history. There is one who is the creator of all. There is one who made a promise to Abraham. He made it whether you and I know about it, feel it or experience it or anything. He actually did that. And we know about the promise 
that he made to Abraham because he's revealed it to us, he's given it to us in his word. And so there grows our knowledge of God. It's something outside of us. It's something objective that God has acted in the pages of history, in time and space. And then in episode 2 with Abraham, we see that again, don't we? In episode 2, at the end of verse 8, we read, You have kept your promise because you are righteous. That's the present tense. You are righteous. If God had made a promise, and he has, that's history. And history tells us that he's kept that promise. And that's what the Bible calls the righteousness of God. And once again, if it's just you and me sharing what we think God is like, and you might say, well, I believe in a righteous God, you know, who is uh, morally perfect. It doesn't sound that exciting. (laughs) You don't get particularly excited about something, an idea in your head. But if there is one who acted in history, who makes promises and keeps his promises and rescues his people, he is righteous. And his righteousness means that he will keep his promises into the future for you and for me then that's something to get excited about. That's the God to get excited about and to praise. That's why I read in the New Testament that in the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, the righteousness has been revealed. He has kept his promise as he said he would. And look what happened. The righteousness of God is the God who keeps his promises. Third episode, the Exodus. You get the present tense there. About the middle of that section, verse 10, it says, You made a name for yourself, which remains to this day. That is, as God, through these extraordinary events in the Exodus, brought his people out. He's got a reputation, he's got a name as one who powerfully delivers his people. It's a reputation that he's lived up to. Episode 4, which runs from 12 to 21, there's this sort of 40-year period where the rebelliousness, the arrogance of the people emerge. Look there in verse 17. But you're a forgiving God, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. You notice again, these are not just comforting thoughts. Friends, I found, and I believe, I suspect you do too, that when the really hard moments in life come, when you face suffering and tragedy, either in your own personal experience or in a, in a, as you share with a loved one, that nice comforting thoughts just go out the window. They're not that comforting. But in the gospel, it's not about nice comforting thoughts. It's about what God is like, whether we believe it or not. It continues to go down um, the promised land, verses 22 to 31, how God, uh, what God has actually done in history and shown us what he is like. And what, of course, in the sixth episode, Jesus has done. That Romans 5, 8 says, God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So I just want to conclude with these two things. What does it mean? Well, for those people back then, in the days of Ezra and Nehemiah, they gathered in Jerusalem, they praised God, And two things float out. Verse 32, it says, Now, therefore, and they realise that they are in great distress because of their sin, because they are still under the oppression. They're not free people. They're foreigners control them. And it teaches us that what follows from praising God, what follows from knowing God because of what he's done in that, is that when you're in great distress, if you're in trouble, you call on him, you cry out to him. And if you know God and if you know what he's like, that he's forgiving and compassionate and slow to anger and abounding in love, that he died on the cross to make that complete forgiveness possible, you'll find yourself realising that once again you're a sinner, but you can cry out to God for help. And second consequence is there in verse 38. In view of all this, we are making a binding agreement. And if you just have a look there on page 477, you'll see the list of all the Levites and the priests who affixed their seal to this binding agreement. They commit themselves to God 
They say we will not neglect the house of God. It's right at the end of that chapter 10. Uh, just turn over the page. We will not neglect the house of our God. That's the ultimate, ultimately where they finish. God's people are renewed. This is the true renewal of God's people, a renewed commitment to God, to the things of God, to the things that he has done. Now, for them, this involved the temple that they just built and rebuilt and all that kind of thing. You remember that. But as you and I hear the praise of God this morning, as we hear the news of what God has done in history, not just from Nehemiah 9 and 10, but as we've heard from episode 6, as I've called it, and in view of all this, what will happen to us? In view of all this, what will happen as we go out this week? Will there be, this morning, a renewed commitment? Not to the temple now, not to any building, but a renewed commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ, who's building his temple, that is, his people, his kingdom. That is his mission that he calls us to, bringing men and women to know him. That's that's the real renewal of God's people, isn't it? We've praised God this morning in various ways. And we've got to ask, what will be the consequence of your praise and my praise this morning? Will it be renewal? Will we be renewed in God today? Praising God is not just effective because the music lifts our spirits. It's nothing to do with it, really. Praising God is effective when we see what God has done and we commit ourselves to him and his work in renewing because we see how good he is. Amen.